0: Welcome to AIJCast, a podcast featuring conversations and performances at the intersection of art, inspiration, and justice. I'm your host, Marthame Sanders. On this episode, part one of our conversation with Analysis. Analysis is a poet, activist, and minister who has just released his debut album a couple thousand years later. Analysis spoke with us from his home in Baltimore. Analysis, welcome to AIJCast.
1: Thank you so much. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. And I've been looking forward to it for a while, and I'm just really glad to be here with you today.
0: I'm looking forward to digging into so much with you. There's so much to touch on, and I would love to start, if it's okay with you, talking about your background in civil rights work, and justice work, in anti-racism, anti-apartheid activism. Because that's a thread—all of these threads are tied together, of course. There's no way to pull them out separate. But that's one that just seems to be so consistently— there in
1: the work that you do. So I'd love to hear about
0: that background.
1: It definitely is a thread. And that goes back to upbringing, really. That goes back to having family members who participated in the civil rights movement. My father was an organizer in the movement, uh, was a part of the Eastern Shore organizing around the time of Gloria Richardson and Rat Brown and some other things. Those that know that bit of Maryland civil rights history and he and my mother and my extended family aunts and uncles you know those play aunts and uncles were at the marches and demonstrations and protests and that type of thing and so there's that legacy as I say particularly with my father and yeah. many of his colleagues and friends you know he grew up with the Mitchells you know prominent black political family here in Maryland and so forth and then also My mother, grandmother, and I attended Heritage United Church of Christ in Baltimore and pastored by someone who I consider not only my pastor, but my mentor, my late mentor, Reverend Wendell Phillips. And he and so many members, so many of my church elders in that congregation were also deeply involved in civil rights and in social political efforts, in political campaigns, so forth and so on. And so, you know, there we were as kids listening to the stories of him and his days when he used to hang with Malcolm when he lived up in Rochester and Martin, you know, so he knew all these cats and was involved in the movement. And so with him and, as I say, other of my church elders, there was always that sense growing up that church was more than just singing in the pew and falling on knees and what have you. These were people that were out in the community. Now, that's not to say that I had a fully cutting edge developed sense of it, but at least there was a sense that faith somehow or another was connected to action. And so as I got older, my college days in D.C. in the 80s really was a crucial point, because I should say for our listeners that There was a time for a few years where I slipped out of that type of movement based faith and slipped into a more right wing evangelical period, Mm. which I think happens for many young people Mm. at an impressionable time. And so around 12 or 13, I kind of got into the born again movement and we need to get everybody saved and so forth and so on. Well, we know that. One of the things that comes from that particular movement is also a very social political conservatism. Sure. So I actually fell into that line of thought for a number of years high school years and moving into college. And, it, you know, I just shake my head when I look back on it. We just talked about how I was surrounded by civil rights movement people. Right. And then for a period of time, I was the little conservative Reaganite hmm. going around talking about Strong USA and we got to fight the evil communism and this this, godless empire exactly exactly as i moved into college years though and began to interact with people in the greater dc area i went to american university for undergrad and something just kind of snapped you know i began to see that this conservative bent that i had gotten into just wasn't adding up two plus two wasn't adding up to four and so i moved out of that and of course that was the time of organizing in support of Latin American activists trying to push back against the controversial years of Reagan's intervention in Latin America.
0: Right, most prominently around the Iran-Contra Exactly, affair. exactly. But all these proxy wars, right? Proxy
1: wars. Looking at economic issues, some of you listeners will remember the Graham-Rudman bill and efforts trying to you know, squash student finances, among other things. And the major thing that I became aware of was the anti-apartheid movement mm. in South Africa. And so that's something that I got involved in from this end, in terms of marching down at the embassy in D.C. and so forth. So these are the types of things that began to contextualize faith for me as something that needs to be on the progressive edge, Hmm. on the left, as we would call it. And not too long after undergrad, I had the great fortune of serving as mission personnel for the United Church of Christ in Lesotho in Southern Africa and I spent a year there from 88 to 89. Hmm. And I was attached to a group called Transformation Resource Center, Hmm. which was a small ecumenical group. At the time, it was both indigenous and expatriate. It has since become all indigenous. But at the time, both expat and indigenous working not only to push back against the influence of the South African apartheid government, but also looking at issues of migrant labor, looking at issues of women's rights, youth work, so forth and so on. And even though a year is a very short time, it was just a dynamic year, as you can imagine, being down there during the apartheid days. Because even though it was a different country, obviously South African apartheid dominated the area. And so it was a time of learning, of interacting with people who had been in the movement. You know, I had colleagues who had been, imprisoned and tortured, colleagues right. who had worked with Stephen Biko in the Black Consciousness Movement. And it made me wrestle with some of my own need to take risk also, because of course, being in that area meant just because we were on the other side of the border, it did not mean that we could not be raided, right. that something could not happen to us. And so it kind of pushed me a bit in that area. And that was really transformative also. And so after that, you know, just to make long story short, there was always a sense of international anti-racism efforts and justice efforts needing to be prominent. Mm -hmm. And so even as I worked as an educator with high school students during the 90s, that is something that I would try to impart to them in some way, shape or form. Certainly as I went to Howard University School of Divinity in the mid and late 90s, that is something that I wanted to be in the fore in terms of my own theological growth and education and understanding. And certainly had opportunity to live out some more when I was in the national offices of the UCC, and had the opportunity to serve on international anti-racism tables and conferences and work with young people, particularly around those issues.
0: You mentioned this waking up kind of of realizing, as you said, things didn't add up. Two plus two didn't equal four, and that kind of Reaganite conservatism. Was there a moment or a series of moments that you can think about where it was like, ah, that's, that was the moment or those were the things or those were the people that helped the scales fall from my eyes? If I can borrow a little bit of New Testament language
1: there. That's a very good question. It's an interesting question because I don't think there was any one specific aha moment. For example, a lot of the strict personal behavior, mm-hmm. moral, so to speak. The
0: puritanical, the puritanical
1: stuff. Puritanical yeah. mores it just didn't make any sense. It mm. served no purpose, you mm. know? And so as I began to interact with people, I realized that it just served no purpose. And trying to live by that puritanical code was not making me feel any closer to the creator. was mm. not making me feel as though I was really doing what I needed to do for the creator's loved ones. Mm. And so that just didn't add up. And then, as we talked about, when you add what was going on in the world, yeah. and these folk hollering about being born again and living by that moral standard and so forth and so on were the same ones who were supporting all types of imperialist evil. And, you know, this is before you get into the attack on women's rights and so forth, you know, on down the line. yeah It just began to not make any sense over the course of time. So I went in to undergrad with this kind of conservative bent but I— in a few short years by the time i came out it was a whole different ball game a yeah. whole different ball game and i wasn't all the way there on all issues few
0: of us are right yeah, you know. i mean everybody's on that spectrum of opinions right that's how we grow and yeah. that's how we move
1: i think that the personal experience is the thing that motivates our growth yeah sometimes that interaction with other people that because of their existence in our lives yeah and our caring for them yeah push us to think differently yeah Take the issue of sexuality, for example. Yeah, so, that's
0: exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. yeah,
1: so my coming to a more enlightened sense of sexuality partially was driven by beginning to interact with ministers and faith people who were of diverse sexualities right. that you know challenged my whole notion of who is bad and who's not bad. Mm-hmm. These are not bad people. Right. These are not evil people. These are wonderful people yeah. doing God's work that I like not only love because I'm supposed to love everybody, I like them as human beings.
0: The people I want to be around. They're people that I want to have a glow in my life. Exactly,
1: exactly. And who am I to cast a stone if we're talking about personal moral behavior? (laughs) That kind of cropped up into it also. These people that we interact (laughs) with, that human interaction really, I think, can drive us to change our own notions.
0: Well, and I'm wondering if the thread of faith continued through that or if there was a moment as you kind of moved from this more kind of conservative, evangelical – version of faith into a more progressive ucc i mean that's quite a shift from a conservative evangelical to ucc but was faith always through that was jesus always part of that or or was it driven at any point more by politics and then it all started to go back to that i mean you talk about being steeped in that as a child so you had some foundation and some grounding in that to begin with
1: yeah and that's kind of the interesting thing you know, having a grounding that was more progressive, but having slipped into a different path for a certain period of time, and then coming out of that and growing even further towards a more progressive path. I think Jesus was always in it. Mm. The thing that had to change was how I understood Jesus. I needed to grow toward the path of understanding Jesus as revolutionary, as opposed to Jesus as just wash us in the blood, and stay away from the world, quote unquote, right? and make sure you get everybody saved before the rapture comes. So my understanding and my framing of Jesus had to radically change yeah, in order to continue to grow. And I'm glad it did. And of course, you know, we're still growing. Sure. I'll tie this yeah. into something else that's a part of it. And we've already talked about the social political spectrum. Yeah. So I grew up in your typical black middle class Democrat family household circles. Yes. I identify now as left a Democrat. I mm-hmm. uh, identify now on the radical left and by extension, you know, on the black radical left. Mm-hmm. You say, well, well, how did you get to this particular point? Because after a while moving through the late 2000s, early 20-teens, by that time I had begun to see what is, in my opinion, too much of the similarity between Republicans, centrist Democrats, a whole bunch of folk that theoretically are different but are still under this umbrella of capitalist greed and oppression and imperialism and neocolonialism and neoliberalism, so forth and so on, that I felt that I could no longer identify like that. And so in the years since, I've considered myself to be growing in understanding what it means to be left of all that. Hmm. And, you know, even though I'm in my late 50s, I still consider myself young in terms of what it means to be on the radical left. But now, bringing it back to faith, part of the excitement for me is that I can be a person of faith on the radical left. Hmm. And there are many people in that sphere who have left faith or certainly have left institutionalized religion with good reason. Mm -hmm. (laughs) with very good reason because of the church hurt the church cut you know deep into the soul and so now my being a person of faith generally of ministerial background more specifically in radical left spaces for me is an exciting thing connecting Mm -hmm. with others who come from that intersection and for me in terms of challenging myself more and more to say what does the following of that guy from Nazareth mean if I claim to be A, his follower and B growing in radical left action. Mm-hmm. What do those two things mean? Mm-hmm. And I'm a long way from having manifested that <laughs> as I need to. I am a long way from thinking that I'm walking the walk as much as I'm talking the talk. Sure. But the excitement is to continue to grow in that and of course, as a part of that, to bring the arts in and live out the arts as a part of that growth in that intersection.
0: Analysis on AIJCast. We'll be back with more of our conversation in just a moment. But first, a quick word. As always, I encourage you to visit the AIJCast website, AIJCast.com, which is where you'll find links to our artists, their news, information, and products. Among the things you'll find there, of course, are links to Analysis' debut album a couple thousand years later, now available on Bandcamp. And there is so much, much more. Just go to our website, AIJCast.com. And now, back to more of our conversation with Analysis. Ministry as you have lived it, ministry, you've talked about working at the UCC, the national level. What else has ministry looked like for you? as a minister, as a rad minister, as your bio says?
1: It plays out in ways more than just the jobs or the positions or the services. So it certainly plays out in those ways in denominational work. Hmm. had the opportunity to spend a short amount of time with the Center for New Community based out of Chicago doing some organizing against xenophobic groups and anti-immigrant hate working out of Ohio and then out of Connecticut for a bit, certainly manifested itself in spending some time with bread for the world, working on anti-hunger legislation and that type of thing. So it certainly plays out in positions like that. But I think it also plays out in the interpersonal interaction, Hmm. whether it comes through the arts, whether it comes through the networking that can occur in different settings as identifying as a person of ministerial faith and background, Mm -hmm. seeking to push to the left. And it shows up in interesting ways. I am a part of a worker collective in Baltimore called Red Emma's Bookstore Coffee House, which is a dynamic project started in 04, an anarchist info shop based project that has grown in physical size in terms of the space and in terms of numbers of folk over the years. It is a vegan restaurant and a radical-left bookstore, and I'm a bookseller there. But one of the really cool things for me personally has been to watch who comes into that space and the networking that can happen in terms of people of a progressive mindset and a radical mindset. And as a subgroup of that, people of radical faith, Hmm. radical-left faith. So for me, it's been an opportunity to network with other ministers, other faith leaders who have a similar view. Uh, We're talking about interfaith networking. We're talking about radical left rabbis, people of Islamic faith, and so forth and so on, discussing what it means to be people of faith, trying to work with congregations and movements and organizations and individual efforts and collective efforts to be a person of radical faith. So say all that to say that, The positions, the official positions that I've held have been outlets for what you're talking about, but also the unofficial dialogue and talking and networking and certainly the arts Mm -hmm. and growing into this performing arts life that I've fallen into in middle age years and trying to make that a part of everything that we're talking about.
0: Yeah. And that work that you're talking about, spoken word poetry, you just released your first album a couple thousand years later. How did you discover that as an outlet, an avenue, a place for you to use this voice? What was it about poetry? What was it about spoken word poetry as opposed to written poetry?
1: Well, I'll say right from the start that those things overlapped. Of course. So in the poetry world. So, for instance, I have a small book somewhere through the haze that is a short collection of eight justice and human rights pieces. Mm. Now, all of those pieces are also on the album. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. It's interesting that I didn't fall into poetry earlier than I did. I got into it maybe about 12 or 13 years ago uh, while I was living in New Haven, Connecticut for a short time. And I got into it largely because I was going out just trying to meet new people. And you know how it is when you move to a new town, you want to see what's going on. And yeah. started hanging out at some spoken word venues and really enjoyed it and the folk there really encouraged me to get on the mic and say, Go on, jump in and participate. And I'm like, Get on the mic with what? With, you know, <laughs> I ended up pulling out an old little brain teaser I'd written for Office Mates a few years before. It was just a little something that was composed of all music titles. And mm. I'd written it just to tease my office mates. Okay, now guess who's the performer or the composer? And when I wrote it, I wasn't thinking in terms of poetry. Yeah. And folk were like, That's poetry. You know, you have to understand that that's what that is mm. in its own way. And I'm like, you know, I never really thought about it. And it was just kind of a bug that bit. Something snapped. And, you know, I was all in in terms of attending the venues. I didn't have my own poems or my own volume of work to tap into to get on the mic with yet. So I started to write some things. But in the meantime, I also said, well, let me take some of the old masters, you know, the Langston Hughes and Dunbar and so forth and read them and see if I can, take their works and give my voice to them hmm. to begin to get comfortable on the mic. And that was a very good discipline. It's a discipline I still recommend to people as they're getting used to really getting on the mic. Right. You may not have your own stuff yet. Take somebody else's work. OPP as we use the double entendre in the poetry <laughs> home, but in home. our terms, other people's poetry, and get used to it. So I started to do that. But again, it's interesting that I didn't fall into it early because I've always been a words person. And coming out of a ministerial background, chock full of public speaking in terms of homiletics and keynotes and other things like that. So I've enjoyed language enough to the point where it's interesting that I I did not fall into it earlier. Hmm. And it was spoken word stylistically that really brought me into the poetry world. And getting into the energy and the fun and the dynamism of spoken word allowed me to revisit things on the page, hmm. maybe that I had not dealt with since high school. And of course, that had long since was like, well, that's in the past. You know, yeah. I can remember watching a summer production of Shakespeare's Winter's Tale up in Connecticut after I had already gotten into the spoken word scene. And it struck me how much more I enjoyed it mm. compared to previous years, compared to decades ago, just yeah. being forced to read it in high school not that I didn't enjoy Shakespeare in high school, but there was a new vibrancy because now I was more familiar from a personal level of what it was to be on stage or be on mic. So I'm hearing the rhymes, I'm yeah. hearing the soliloquies, I'm hearing the way the language was written a lot better.
0: I remember when I went to seminary and was going into ministry, somebody said, and I, and I, and this still holds true that once you preach, you'll never sit in the pew the same way again mm-hmm. exactly. because when you listen to a sermon, it's hard to get lost in it. Once you've been a preacher, you will often sit there and think that's really good. I would love to use that <laughs> or I wouldn't have done it that way. Or, Oh, they're missing opportunity, exactly. right? That critical. Exactly. That, and you hate it, but that's really true. <laughs> so true. there's something we all about getting into the craft. Like you said, like once you became immersed in this world of poetry and public poetry, To appreciate the craft that goes into it, even from something as old as Shakespeare. Yeah, there's something about being in the community in a sense.
1: Very much so. Very much so. Uh, Ditto on your experience. You always (laughs) listen to a sermon thinking, okay, good. So what I'm going to do when I go there with it. (laughs) (laughs) But the poetry community also. A lot of what we're talking about is about community. The poetry community has just been so wonderful to me Mm. in terms of... Listening to my art and receiving my art and being challenged by my art and showing me things, Mm. teaching me and really being in so many ways a family beyond just the stage, beyond just the Mm. mic. And so that's one of the things that really has kept me energized uh, on the spoken word scene.
0: Well, and we're in such an interesting time where we're post-ish COVID, but not really, and, you know, not really sure what the future holds, but COVID really kind of, as somebody said, it was like a UV light, shining a UV light on so many things in society that were already there, we just were ignoring it, right? And one of the places that that it happened was in churches, and how we have now hit the point, apparently, that less than 50% of Americans identify themselves as part of any congregation of any religion, the first time in our history that that's happened. As we're kind of renegotiating these things about what church is, what communities of faith look like, all that kind of stuff, I, and you talk about the poetry community, the first thing I think of is, God, that would be nice if church was like that. Yeah. And I would love to hear you kind of riff on that, see if there are things that you feel like the poetry community gave you that the church could learn from, that the church missed the boat on, that the poetry community does better than, et cetera. I would just love, you know, wherever that takes you.
1: I spend more time in poetry venues than I do churches these days, and that's probably been the case for some years, uh, you will hear many a person in spoken word poetry scene say that that is their church. Mm -hmm. That is the place where they can come and release and be vulnerable and share and emote and receive support Mm. and identify with others. And I'm not saying every last venue on the earth is as open as others or supportive as others. But generally speaking, there's so many people who really draw their energy and their community from the spoken word scene. And you raise the current demographics Mm -hmm. of our churches right now. And we've known for a few decades where mainstream Protestantism in particular has been going in terms of membership and churches aging themselves out. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And there are things that churches have to do if they're not going to die out first, you have to get really serious about moving towards a radical understanding of justice action. Okay, because young people, whether that means a generation after me or two generations after me, we'll say either one, uh, they're not for a whole lot of the BS anymore.
0: Yeah.
1: And just sitting around, and no, you can't see the police brutality. You can't see the WikiLeaks of US military killing people, so forth and so on, and just sit around with the same old, same old. Mm. So churches are going to have to commit themselves to some radical left action and also be creative enough and dynamic enough from an art standpoint to open up themselves in ways that the poetry community does. And and Mm -hmm. certainly I'm sure you see it in the music community and in certain ways in the the progressive music community. And again, going back to mainstream Protestantism in particular, it's got to change. It's got to change, or else all these aging out churches will age right on out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot that can be learned and taken from the arts community and from the poetry community. And in my vision, I'm not talking about right-wing, holy hip-hop, and things that are the arts, but they're maintaining the same old LGBTQ bashing or the same old non-critical rah-rah, red, white, and blue. You know, I'm talking about a dynamic, art scene within our faith bodies that will push people to some new radical understandings.
0: So when you describe the the poetry community and talking about this is a place where I can go and be myself, that again kind of struck me as churches, and I'm, I'm a product of Southern white mainstream church, and there's a niceness, there's a veneer of niceness, and there's a veneer of I've got my stuff togetherness. And so churches aren't really places where you can bring your realness. It has been my experience, at least in that cultural milieu. And so again, it's like this place of, wow, it'd be great if churches could do that also. And to be clear, I'm not mourning the loss of communities where that's not happening. I can grieve a passing of a kind of way that older generations knew and and valued, but I'm also not that sad about those kind of what I would call kind of soft peddling of Jesus communities going away. I'm okay with that.
1: I respect that. I think you've made a very forthright, perhaps, you know, courageous in certain context statement in saying that. And I think you you challenge us to the fact that there's stuff that we need to let go of. Yeah. It's time to let go of certain things. And so how much effort do we spend trying to corner the Titanic or do we gently you know say god bless and let it rest and institute brand new things yeah. and spaces where you can be vulnerable as you were saying most of the spaces you can't really totally be vulnerable right i have a relationship with my home church that is very the church that i mentioned earlier that i grew up in that is very distant right now and you know a lot of the onus on that is on me but as i have really grown and moved into different spaces i wonder if home church is ready to be in those spaces also and if it's in those spaces and if it's not is it the place where i can fully be myself as you're talking about yeah and how many congregations are there out there where we can fully be ourselves. And it's a challenge that, that goes right to the heart of what you're saying. Mm-hmm. It's so difficult sometimes for people who are really exploring your radical understanding of community and what it means to be in relationship with God's creations. You would think there would be more faith bodies where that could be lived out fully hmm. and where you could be your wild and crazy and radical self fully, but they are few and far between. And when people come in town, they ask me, Ken, we're new to Baltimore where should we go? Oh, we're new to Maryland. And in the right world, I'd rip off 10 and 15 off the top of my head without thinking. But I have to stop and think and make sure I'm guiding them right. correctly. And the fact that I have to stop and think for the answer to that question speaks volumes.
0: Analysis on AIJCast. You can find him online at artistecard.com slash poet which includes links to all of his socials. And you can find his debut album on Bandcamp at analysis1, that's the number one, dot On our next episode, part two of our conversation with Analysis. AIJCast is made possible through the support of listeners like you. We can only do what we do because of that support. So please do take just a moment and go to our website, AIJCast.com, and click on the link that says... Support, And we do love to interact with you on the social media things. We are there on a multitude of platforms where our handle is, shockingly, AIJCast. Our theme music comes from our house band, Fame, And we are engineered, mixed, and produced by the somewhat ancillary Al Mudif. He talks about how the original Spider-Man movie inspired him. It made me wrestle. And I'm your host, Marthame Sanders, encouraging you to create some beauty of your own And remember that the world isn't truly beautiful until it's beautiful for all. Until next time, I leave you with justice and peace.